This summer, Brittany and I took the kids up to Flagstaff, Arizona, and we had a good time, of course. Now, most of you guys know that we missed some time at church because we're gone, and then we missed the other week after that because we had a quarantine because we were in contact with someone who got coronavirus. That's all most of you know about our vacation. The other side of it was that there were some really great moments, like food. (laughs) And there was this one night where we ordered from this wonderful Indian place, If you like Indian food, you know what I mean. If you don't, you're just in another universe. But we got all kinds of Indian food. uh, And it's just the sort of stuff where you take the flatbread and you try this sauce and that dip and that curry. And you just, you dig in and you don't know when to stop because every single little dish is so explosive with flavor and spices. And then at some point, You're like, how did we eat all that? And then you're bent over going, why did we eat all that? And then you're saying, how do we deal with eating all that? And there's this like satisfying, happy pain that's happening in your body as you're going, oh man, did we really do that? We really did do that. And it's in those moments where you just... Um, in, in other cultures, not in America, but in other cultures, it is a hundred percent appropriate, polite, and expected for you to let out a loud belch afterward. And in moments like that, I totally understand those cultures. Because that's the only way you feel like you can contain the fullness of what you have had is by letting some of it not some of it out, but I mean, <laughs> not that. But I, I just mean letting some air out. The belch in many cultures, including including the Bible times, was an expression of satisfaction. And in those moments, I get it. I get why that became a cultural norm, because there are times when we just need to belch some room. Well, I know, I told you it'd be crude. That's, I feel like I stooped on this one, but I had to reach for something because this passage, this passage deals with this condition in the soul. How do you handle what is too much for you to handle? How do you live with and walk with being overstuffed, being satiated to the point where you're groaning with delight? How do you handle that? Well, the soul was meant to belch some of that. And that's what this psalm is. It's it's almost, if you don't see this too irreverent, you got to put this in the best light possible. This is David belching in satisfaction because he has tasted and seen. He has sat at the table with God and he is satiated. So, There's my attempt. This is the second psalm in a sandwich, you may remember from last week. A sandwich is, uh, it's a visual for us to understand a literary device that the Jews would use called a chiasm. Fancy words, yes. It's where you have themes on the ends, and then you move in a step, and there's themes on those ends. You move in a step, there's themes until you get to the center. A sandwich works better because we can see that. So you got the bread on the ends, then you got cheese inside that, and then you got 
I don't know, mayo or onion. I mean, uh, yeah, sure, whatever, something else. Then he got the meat, right? This is what these psalms are doing. From 15 through 24, we have a sandwich. So last week, and this fits really well with being satiated and overly glutted sandwiches. Uh, last week, we saw the psalm asking who can dwell on God's mountain. That was Psalm 15. Psalm 24 comes back to the same theme and asks in Psalm 24, verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And that psalm also goes into answering the question, who can live with God on his mountain? So 15 to 24 is like the sourdough bread holding this thing together. Then Psalm 19, boy, this is going to be a, this is a new challenge. Wind, turning your Bible. Um, Psalm 19 is where we see the meat. This is the very center. All the Psalms, 15 and 24, work their way toward the meat of Psalm 19. And this is the Psalm that deals with the Torah or the instruction, the word, the law of God. It's one of three psalms that express praise and adoration and reverence for the word of God. The first is Psalm 1. It talks about the one whose delight is in the law of God and he meditates on it day and night and he becomes like the tree that is identically fruitful. The second one is Psalm 19, which I'm talking about. And the third one, smash 1 and 19 together, and you get 119. Psalm 119 is a very long psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, and every single verse is about how glorious God's word is. Okay, so our sandwich. Who can live with God on his mountain? The very center. Here is God's word for us to follow. It gives us fullness of life. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But now we are in the first layers of the sandwich. We're past the bread because we're in chapter 16 now. So chapter 16 is going to correspond naturally with chapter 23. You know Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's a psalm of comfort. Psalm 16 is a psalm of comfort. And Psalm 16 is going to tell us precisely why we do not have needs when God is our shepherd. Psalm 16 is going to tell us because in God, there is an abundance of life. Let's read it. Psalm 16, the title says, A Mictum of David. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or that's the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I want to read to you guys a couple quotes, or at least one quote that I think really capsulates what's going on here. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote this. He said, joy is life in excess. Joy is life in excess. It's the overflow of what cannot be contained within any one person. I love that. Joy is life in excess. It isn't something that I go acquire. It isn't something that I work into myself. Joy is what happens when my life is bubbling up in excess and spills out and over. It's the overflow of what cannot be contained within any one person. It cannot be contained just in me. So it has to come out. There's some sort of a life that's in me, that cannot stay in me because it's bigger than me. So it spills out onto other people. That's what joy is. It's this overflow, this spilling over of what I cannot hold within myself. And I believe that this psalm beautifully captures this concept that in God's presence, verse 11 says, there is fullness of joy. And... What we see through every line of this psalm is that in God is an excess of life. In God, God can't hold his life to himself. God does not restrict his life from us or from any of creation. It's overflowing and that's what God's nature is. It's it's overflowing in relationship. It's seeking for creatures to fill with this overflowing life. God is a God of abundance. There's no limit. There's no restraint. He knows no end to what he gives to his creation and what he gives to his people. And this psalm celebrates David's, it's David's celebration of getting in on, tasting, and experiencing the overflow of God's goodness, his pleasure, and his joy. I want to highlight a couple sections in here. First of all, the title itself is incredibly interesting. A mictim of David. You get it? A mic- You don't get it? Oh, no, that's why I'm going to explain it. It's a Hebrew word. And actually, I looked it up and nobody knows what it means. 
Um, however, some of the older commentators um, were more adventurous in taking guesses, like Charles Spurgeon. His magnificent commentary on the Psalms uh, is quite helpful, and John Corson adopted Spurgeon's interpretation, and he teaches this as well, so if you don't like it, you can blame them. But... Um, a mictum. So we don't technically know what it means because it's a word that wasn't really used. It's believed to be a liturgical term or a musical term, but it has a close association to the word gold. A close association to the word gold. So some people think that a mictum means it's a golden psalm. It's one of David's crown, like the jewels in the crown of his psalms. Like this is one of the golden ones. Um, this is the first mictum psalm. There are a couple others starting in Psalm 50, I want to say 56. Um, boy, I turned there and then the wind said, nope, you're going to 82. Uh, 56, yes, 56. So I, I, I'm just going to read some of the titles of the other mictums so that you get the sense of maybe what mictums are about or golden psalms. Psalm 56, the title says, To the choir master, according to this tune, The dove on far-off terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Hmm. So in Psalm 56, this mictum is when David is in a really dark place, a hard spot. Chapter 57 to the choir master, according to the tune, do not destroy. That sounds like a minor key tune, doesn't it? Or maybe some heavy metal. It's really aggressive, dangerous music, it sounds like. And then look in 57. A mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. This is a mictum when, once again, he's in danger. He's fleeing from another enemy. This time it's Saul. And this time he's hiding in a cave. Psalm 58, to the choir master, according to, again, the tune, do not destroy. You could get a theme here, can't you? A mictum of David. Now, it doesn't tell us his situation other than the, the tune of the song is apparently a dangerous tune. And look at the first two verses. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? That's a, the Hebrew there can also mean judges. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. Sounds like a modern day verse, doesn't it? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. It's the dangerous context of this mictum. 59. To the choir master, according to do not destroy. Do not destroy. Probably goes like that, right? A mictum of David. When Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. You remember that? David had to go out the window through the bed sheets and his wife put a little, uh, well, it said an idol. I don't know why he had an idol in his house, but put a little idol in his bed so that Saul would come in and think David was in there and he escaped through the window. That, that's the context. And then last, the last mictum is Psalm 60. Notice these are all in order, by the way, except the one we're doing tonight is a standalone. I wonder what happened. Like, how did he get orphaned from the other collection? 
There must be an, inter- like an intention in putting Psalm 16 where it is and leaving the others here. I, I don't, I don't have a, any guesses for you, but maybe you can send me one if you get one. Psalm 60 says, the title, to the choir master according to Shishan Eduth, a mictum of David for instruction. So this one's a teaching psalm. When he strove with Aram Nerahim and with Aram Zobah. So there's a striving here that's in this psalm. And it says, when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. You guys get it? The mictums, whatever the word means, are always in context of danger. Is Psalm 16 any different? No, it starts with, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. But that's all we get. This isn't like the other Psalms that we've seen up to this point, where the Psalter begins mostly with panic and pain and, ah, I'm dying. We see one verse of that, and then David apparently is so over, wonder-whelmed at God's goodness for him that he does nothing but praise him from verse 2 on. So here's what we can perhaps conclude about the mictums. Perhaps it does have some association with the word gold. But there's another association um, that it could also refer to a covering you put over a vessel. It's a word for the little covering you put on it. So some people say mictum means to hide. Well, I mean, does gold just lie around in the streets? You just pick it up? Not at least on earth. No, gold's hidden. Precious gems are hidden. It's not like the gold rush's naive belief where you just come to California and pick gold up right off the ground. It's everywhere. It's not. Gold has to be mined. It's in dark, hidden places under the earth. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of danger to get the gold and the gems out of the earth. And perhaps mictums are the psalms of what happens when you find yourself in danger and you think, or you, you realize you have to hide in God, that God is your only refuge. And in those moments of desperation, when we look to God to be our hiding place, God to be our refuge, it's in those moments that we discover where the true gold lies. God's presence is the gold mine. But sometimes it takes danger and it takes us running from an enemy or from a situation and finding our refuge in God to discover that in him is all the treasure we ever needed. And perhaps, perhaps the victims are David's treasury. It's his treasury of this is what I've learned by being desperate for God. And these Psalms, therefore, are indeed a treasure trove for us. And Psalm 16 does not disappoint. So we begin with the mictum. We begin with his asking for preservation for his refuging. He's a refugee and he finds shelter in God. And then verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Um, so here's where in verse two, 
You'll notice I say to the Lord, Lord is in all capital letters, which references his personal name. We pronounce Yahweh, or we guess it's pronounced Yahweh. The Jews would not pronounce that out of reverence. They would instead say Hashem, the name, or they would say Adonai, which means Lord. Um, but so here we say, I say to Yahweh, I say to God, I call to God himself, his personal name, you are my Lord. Now notice, you are my Lord is capital L, but the other letters are lowercase. That means this is the common word for Lord. Just the regular, when you say, Lord Henry, that's that kind of Lord. It's not Yahweh, it's Master. So I'm pointing this out so that you see the difference. He's he's telling God himself, Yahweh, you are my master. Now, here's a footnote. Um, I, uh, you guys know that for well, forever, for years, forever. I've um, I've actually just read Yahweh right off the page when we come to the capital L O R D, um, and I've always done that because I like to distinguish where it just says God, because God is a title, where it says Lord, because Lord's a title. And then when it says his actual name, the name that's different than Baal or the Asherims or all the other gods of the world, I like to say the actual name. But one day, I just it hit me. I'm like, you know what? If the Jews don't say Yahweh, I don't, maybe, maybe that's irreverent of me. And maybe I don't think it's irreverent to God himself, but... You know what? If it's irreverent to somebody else, maybe I shouldn't use that. So I've actually stopped. You may have picked that up. And I've just been saying, Lord. Um, but I like to use the distinction because I think it, it leverages the personal name of God to his people in a different way when you read it. So what I what I plan to do from here on out is instead of saying Yahweh, uh, just adopting the way the Jews do it and saying Adonai. So when we see his name, the I am that I am, Yahweh, um, I'm, I'm going to try to start just saying Adonai at those places so we understand this is his personal covenantal name with his people. So there you go. I had to explain that because it's been a few weeks. Um, verse 2 says, so close that footnote. We'll get back to verse 2. So he says, I say to Adonai, you are my master. I have no good. I have no good apart from you. Or you could read that, all my goodness, and I believe the NIV says, all my happiness is in you. Or I have no good apart from you. I really like the negative phrasing because when you just take it one half of the line at a time, it really sticks out. I have no good. I have, Pastor Brandon, I have no good in and of myself apart from you. So now when I am partnered with God, now there is good in my life. But on my own, there's no good in myself. And don't believe what the world tells you is that you're basically a decent chap who just needs a little instruction. We have no good apart from God. But now in him, yes, you're... There's lots of good, an abundance of good. It's his goodness being put into you. And so I have no good apart from you. All the goodness I have in my life is because of and through and in him. 
And here's the condition. I say to Adonai, you are my master. We find goodness in God when we make him our master. Now, we all have different masters. We all seek happiness in life. We all want to be happy. And you can actually, some philosophers have said, basically, every action a man chooses is based upon his version of what will make him happy, what he thinks will make him happy. All of humanity seeks happiness. Depends on where you're finding it. In God, he will make us happy and all of our good will come from him. We will find the richness and the goodness of God in life. If we don't want him to be our master, you're going to find nothing but bothersome things about God. Oh, he's telling me to do this again. Or he's in my way. Or if only I wasn't going to be held accountable for this, I'd be much happier doing it. But if God's our master, we will find we have lots of good in him. Now, verse 3 As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Now, I don't know if, um, I'm sure everyone, well, I don't know. So the ESV, which I'm reading from, the New King James as well, uh, read very similarly here where they're saying in verse three, we're talking about, I love the people of God. And then verse 4, I really don't like those who have a bunch of idols in their life. That's a very simple, clean way of translating this. But to be truthful, um, the, the Hebrew in this chapter is all over the place. And if you look at a variety of translations, you can see it. It's not that the Hebrew is sloppy. It's just that it's super vague in this chapter. And here's a part. Because some translations will say, uh, as, for, um, as for the saints in the land... I'm sorry, it's, it, it, it phrases verse 3 to address the saints in the land. It says, to the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom, is, in whom was all my delight. And then they say, I say to you, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So a lot of other translations actually make verse 3 and 4 connected, not as opposites, but as similar. And it's confusing. You're like, what in the world? Why would you say the saints, and then they're, the saints are going after another god. And the idea, and I'm saying this in case your Bible reads this way, you help you understand. Um, the idea is that saints is sarcasm. As to the so-called holy ones, the magnificent ones in whom I used to delight, their sorrow is going to multiply because they go after other gods. So there's a turn of heart from the psalmist. I used to be with them, but I'm not anymore. I found my delight in God instead. Either way, it's showing us a, it's showing us the point that in verse 4, if in verse 2 we have good in God, verse 4 says we have sorrows by pursuing another God. Right? Now, really interesting. The sorrows of those who run after. That phrase, run after, uh, could also uh, be acquire. The idea of you're purchasing or you're getting, um, so you're chasing, you're trying to acquire, trying to possess and own. Uh, there's also, um, because Hebrew didn't have the verbs actually in the words, Hebrew's all consonants. So sometimes uh, it could be pronounced two different ways. 
And if you pronounce a different way, that word could actually mean betrothed. So it could actually read the sorrows of those who betroth themselves to another God. Isn't that interesting? Because here it goes hand in hand because with the betrothal, there'd be a dowry. There'd be some sort of a purchase to acquire a union, a marriage. And here they are running after them, running down the aisles and make this betrothal. It's like they're going to Vegas. I can't get enough and we got to get it now. Let's go to Vegas and get it done. That's how it's treating uh, those who are pursuing other gods. Why? Why this haste? Why this hurry? Why this, why this trying to get marriage involved? Because they have not found good in Adonai yet. They have not found good in him. So they're looking for good and they can't find good. So they have to race from, okay, we got one God. Not good enough. We got two gods. Oh, it's too many. We got three and here's the idea. Those, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So the more gods you get, the more your sorrow multiplies, just like the man who's betrothing himself to not one, but three, seven, 22, a thousand wives. The sorrows, just like, okay, you can imagine, ladies, if it's a hard time to have one husband, <laughs> Uh, men, if it's hard enough to have one wife, imagine multiple. Um, because that would be hard. Like one, maybe spouse is great. Maybe your marriage is great, but it won't be great if you're sharing time and there's jealousy and there's, this is the image. And it's a very powerful image, isn't it? Of those who multiply gods are really compounding the relational status between them and their desires. What they're doing is they're searching for happiness. But look, on our own, we have no good. Apart from God, we have no good. We have no happiness. We have no blessing. And so they're they're adding on to find it. And as they're looking, they're making themselves more miserable. It's like the man who keeps licking salt because he's thirsty. You're going to just keep licking it more and more. I love what Matthew Henry said on this verse. Matthew Henry is that really old commentator, very windy, long. He will write pages and pages on one verse. But uh, this, he said, They that multiply gods multiply griefs to themselves. For whosoever finds one god too little will find two too many. And yet hundreds not enough. Isn't that a conflicted posture? One God's not enough, but two's too many. So I'm, I've got a hundred and they're not enough. It's just this back and forth. It's too many. It's not enough. The burden of too many gods. Here's the great news, friends. We don't have to follow verse four. We get to do verse five through 11. And there's no lighter burden than verse five through 11. It is joy and gladness and pleasure. And, well, there is a burden which we're going to see, but it's a good burden. It's the burden of excess of life. It's the excess of God's life pouring out into us. So let's keep going. Verse five. Adonai is my chosen portion and my cup. You, Adonai, hold my lot. Okay, my chosen portion, my cup, my lot, 
These are all synonyms here for the same image. And it keeps going in verse 6. The lines, think of like a boundary line. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. See, so chosen portion, my cup, my lot, the lines, beautiful inheritance. He said the same thing five times so that you get the image. He's talking about an acquisition. In verse 4, the sorrows are multiplying. They're acquiring acquiring sorrows for all the gods that they serve. But in verse 5, he's acquiring an inheritance. And not just physical, perhaps physical land, perhaps in the new heaven and new earth, God gives each of us our, our allotment, perhaps. But the psalmist here seems to be saying that God himself is the inheritance. You, Ya Adonai, you are my chosen portion. I have a beautiful inheritance. What's the inheritance? My chosen portion in Adonai. The ones who are running after multiple gods in verse 4, they're pouring out these blood offerings from a cup. They're pouring out. But here in verse 5, God is my chosen. He's my cup. It's flow. As you'll see in Psalm 23, my cup runneth over, the King James says. It's abundant. It's overflowing. So there's this beautiful inheritance that we have. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, um, you don't if you if you want to turn there you can but I just, I just want to point out some concepts from Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that in Christ in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And then in verse 14 he tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians chapter 1. What a chapter. It begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has already given to us our inheritance. And then it, it comes around full circle and says, in Christ, we've obtained that inheritance. We have a guarantee that it's coming in the Holy Spirit. But here's the deal. Psalm 16 and Ephesians 1 are going together in the sense of, look, God has given you all these blessings and all this goodness and the inheritance. It's all poured out to the Christian. There's nothing you do to get more from him. He's already made all of himself accessible. He's already poured all of himself out into his people it's a matter of, like Israel in their inheritance, in the promised land, it's a matter of our choosing to step into the inheritance. What did God tell Joshua in Joshua chapter 1? He told him, look, every place where your foot touches, I have already given to you. In other words, Israel, walk and enjoy And I could just see Joshua having a hard time grasping this because we live in a world that says the opposite. God is about abundance. The world's about scarcity. Just remember the toilet paper scare. The world's about, look, we need to reserve. We need to hold back. We need to hoard. We need to save. We need to dish out in doses. We need to ration. We need to contain. But God knows none of that. And he says, I just know abundance and pour out. So here, all the land here is just walking it. 
And Joshua's like, he's wrestling with this. He's like, really? And so he puts his foot on the bank of a creek. How about here? God's like, is your foot there? Yeah, then it's yours. Can't you just see it? You know, like how a toddler would challenge your commands. Do not cross that line. And then they put their foot over like, can I do this? Can I do that? Or don't touch anything in the house. This is grandma's house. Don't touch anything. What about this? What about that? What about the air? Like they're just defying you. I could see Joshua just like, okay, what about this mountain? And he puts his foot on top of it. What about this? He's like, mm-hmm. What about this valley? Mm-hmm. What about these hills? Mm-hmm. What about this latrine? Mm-hmm. And everywhere Joshua goes, God's like, Joshua, is your foot on it? It's yours. This is the total opposite. It's not the, Joshua, you can't do that. No, don't put your foot there. No, it's Joshua. Where do you want to put your foot? I've given it to you. This is the abundance of God. And so Ephesians picks up the same concept when Paul says that in Christ we have our inheritance. In him, we've already been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Are we going to step in? Are we going to put our foot in? And Psalm 16 is is one large invitation to put your foot in. This is from the book that we'll be doing on Wednesdays, if you're going to join. Um, it says this, a psalm of praise, Psalm 16, a psalm of praise invites us to experience the joyful presence of God as a presence of abundance. That's just perfect. A psalm of praise, Psalm 16, is inviting us to put our feet into the inheritance, to experience the abundance of the presence of God. When we come into his presence, it's not restricting. It's not, okay, put that away. <laughs> like a teacher, like a teacher like me has to do with students. Put your phones away. Um, God doesn't tell us to put parts of ourselves away. Like, oh, come on. You didn't get your act together, Susie. Put that, put your, put, and it's like, I only need a part of you, the good part of you. God wants all of us. He wants all of us. He allows because he is going to pour into us. See, here's, okay, here's the thing that we need to understand and Psalm 16 is inviting us into. God's not waiting for us to get our act together. Remember Psalm 15? We don't have to perfect ourselves to climb the mountain. Christ has come down the mountain to us. He has brought God's dwelling place to us. When we come into God's presence, it's not restriction, limitation, and rules. It's not a wall that says, ye must be circumcised to enter. That's what the temple said in Jerusalem. It says, yes, there are parts of you that need to be cut off. Absolutely, come into my presence and we will deal with it. See, the way God deals with us, the way he treats us, the way he changes us, is by overloading us with goodness so that we have no hands left to hold on to the other junk. Thank you. <laughs> I do too. We, we just are too hesitant to believe that God is overflowing. Because we come from a human standpoint of scarcity, of restriction, of holding back. 
And we imagine that God's the same way. But not David, because he had to bury himself in God, and he discovered something different, a beautiful inheritance, which he's going to just keep expounding for us in verse 7. I bless Adonai who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Again, Hebrew is not always clear in this psalm. It literally means like my kidneys. <laughs> um, kidneys probably refers to like the inner part. So maybe the heart. That's where the ESV comes up with my heart um, instructs me. In other words, it just seems that God is with us day and night, giving us counsel and guidance. And um, oh, there was um, one translation that said, um, you, you center my mind in the evenings on you. That, that's the way they put that. I, I thought that was beautiful. So day and night, God is with us. He's guiding us. This verse 8 says, I have set Adonai always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I love this. He's always at my right hand. God's always with me. I'm always in his presence. It's about waking up to living in his presence. That's what it's about. We're the ones who close our hearts off, who shut our eyes and blind our just blind our souls and think, oh, I got to get in God's presence. Friends, you're in it. You're in his presence always. The question is, do we, like verse 8 says, do we set his presence before us? Or is it just lurking somewhere passively in our lives? I know God's with me, but you're just passive about it. We don't grow into God's goodness on accident. I grow into a lot of bad things on accident. I grow out of things on accident. But we only press into God's goodness when we choose to be aware that he's around us always. And that is what the Psalms are pushing us to do, is to pray. Yes, the Psalms recognize we all know how to pray. God, help when things happen. You don't have to teach anyone to pray that. People who don't believe in God pray when they're in trouble. They may not be praying to anything in specific, but they yell out for help. You, we don't need to be taught to pray that way. We need to be pray, taught to pray in a way that puts us face to face with God. And that's what Psalm 16.8 is saying. I have set Adonai always before me. And so what's the result? Verse 9, because he's sitting in his presence, because he's entering in, verse 9, therefore... My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. One translator in his commentary put this verse like this. Um, Therefore, my heart rejoices and my pulse beats with joy. My heart rejoices and my pulse beats with joy. I really like that. There's this joyful rhythm and pulse going on within us. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Brothers and sisters, we are not, as one person put it, souls on a stick. God is not just saying, ah, I'm going to save your soul from hell. This psalm is going way beyond that thinking. 
It's going way beyond saving us from hell and it's realizing he's actually taken us and poured his loving, good presence into us. And when it says that my flesh also dwells secure, it says that God's goodness exceeds my spiritual needs and it also takes care of me, body, soul, spirit. My entire being will be taken care of. Yes, God wants us to flourish inside and outside. And he cares so much about it that this is, well, here we go. Verse 10 is a huge verse. So my whole flesh dwells secure for, or because, you will not abandon my soul to shul, so there's the inner part of us, or let your Holy One see corruption, there is the outer part of us. What is it saying here? David's saying, when I die, I know that I will not be abandoned in the place of the dead. Yes, Psalm 136 says, even there you are with me. Why? Because Christ, when he came to us, didn't say, well, I stop right where the tax collectors and the sinners are. No, he went to them too. Nor did he say, oh, but I stop with pain and suffering. No, he also went to the cross. Oh, but I stop with pain and suffering. I don't do death. No, he died on the cross. And so even in Shul, even in the place of the dead, there he is. There was no place out of bounds when he came to get us. And that's what Good Friday tells us, is that even in the grave, God said, yep, I want to find you. My love will chase you even to the grave so that you won't be abandoned in death because there I am as well. And, David says, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is the head-scratcher. Because we get, okay, he's not going to abandon us in death. We believe in an afterlife with God. But, you won't let your Holy One see corruption? That's talking about bodily decay. Well, fortunately, the mystery is solved in Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up the day the Holy Spirit falls upon the followers of Jesus. And he tells everyone, look, what you are witnessing is God's promise in filling his people with his Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is happening because Jesus, whom you killed, was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God so he could give us this blessing. Pause. One of the things Peter's saying right there is, look, you guys know because Caesar's our king. You guys know what it's like. When a new king ascends the throne, the king usually says, all right, I want to tax the people. I need tributary. I need people to come devote themselves to me by giving me gifts so that I can hoard up my treasures and be powerful. But this king, Christ, when he ascends the throne, he does the opposite. He goes to the treasury and he throws the door open and says, all right, line up. I have gifts to give to my people. He's emptying the treasure houses of his throne. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit is. It's the king saying, here is my gift. Here's my treasure. And I'm pouring it out upon my people because I am a king of abundance. And so then Peter says, he quotes this psalm right here. He says, for you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He says, remember when David said that? And the Jews are like, yeah, we, we know the Psalms. We remember when David said that. And he said, well, look, 
why don't you look over there? And Peter could actually point from the temple right over to David's tomb. It was visible. And he'd say, you want to know what David's body looks like in there? It's rotted. It's corrupted. It's, it, there's nothing but bones. David was not talking about himself, Peter says, but he was prophesying the Messiah to come that when the Messiah dies, he will not face corruption, but he will come back to life. He was using this psalm as evidence that in Jesus, death is not the final word and corruption will not have its way with God's people. And so Jesus is raised from the dead. Three days, no time for corruption. The body is intact. It's now a new glorified body. He comes out of the tomb. And uh, Paul, too, by the way, quotes this to talk about Jesus as the Messiah in Acts 13. It's Paul's first message um, when he's on his first missionary campaign. He also quotes the psalm. So, okay, so what are we seeing here? We are seeing that God is so overflowing with life. His life is so abundant that he will not even let death hold his life back. And that's the point. If we understood, let's say, you know, if, okay, if we, if we understood Psalm 16 literally and took it to its fullest conclusion, we would watch the Son of God die and then say, oh, I know that's not the end because God's life cannot be restricted. Not even the grave could hold it. And so it was true. The resurrection is a logical conclusion of this abundant life of God. So even from the grave, it's overflowing. And so, our psalmist concludes rather climatically with verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. What kind of life? The kind of life that the grave doesn't hold down. The kind of life that we have in us through the Holy Spirit and will experience bodily at the great resurrection when Jesus returns. Isn't that good? We get that life and we have a piece of it now. You have made known to me the path of life. David did not, I don't know how he knew what he was saying. (laughs) If he even understood the magnitude of what he's saying. How did God make known the path of life to us? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How has he made it known? In Christ. In Christ, we have our inheritance. In Christ, we have this life. In Christ, we have this abundance. He's made it known to us in Christ. We follow Christ. We pursue Christ. Verse 11 continues. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Or one translator said, there is a satiation of joy. I am sated with joy. I love that. Fullness makes me think of so many different things, but satiated. There's only one thing I think of. Indian food. (laughs) This is David groaning at the table in the presence of God going, oh, it's so good. And what can he do? He can do nothing but belch it out. Psalm 16 is David's belch from being sated with the joy of God's presence. And this is true, friends. Praise is our sharing. It's the natural result of us being so overfilled with the overflowing life of God that it's overflowing from us. And the only way God's life overflows from us is through praise. That's the natural language of God's life coming out of us. 
It is not complaining. It is not rage. It is not fear. It is not the common language we find right now in our culture. When God's joyful presence spills out into us and then it spills out of us to the world, it will only sound like this psalm. Oh, I have no good apart from Adonai. He is my inheritance. I I just want to be in his presence because there I am sated with joy. And at your right hand are pleasures, pleasures forevermore. Friends, God wants you. I know this is going to sound super modern and new agey and all that blah, blah. But even they are right. A broken clock's right twice a week or twice a day, right? God wants you to be happy. Now, I'm not going to sell a book on how to be happy because here's the difference. God wants us to be happy. But as we see in Psalm 16, it's in him. It's in him. God is not a means to an end. In other words, God is not something that we use to get to joy. We don't come to God and say, all right, I want to be sated. And he says, all right, over there. No, we come to God to be sated. It's a big difference. All humans seek happiness. Sometimes Christianity says you shouldn't seek happiness. You should deny yourself and you should. But sometimes it's in a very like uh, kind of lifestyle. I deny myself. Be serious about God. Okay, so we all seek happiness. But the Bible says we should seek happiness. See the difference? All humans are seeking happiness. But God says, I want you. No, no, no. I say you should seek happiness. Wait, what? Yeah, because all humans are finding it in the wrong places. God's like, I want you to find it. You just got to find it in the right place. So all humans seek happiness. All humans should seek happiness because God says humans should be sated with happiness, overflowing with happiness in Christ, in God, not from God. Please note, it's not from God. We don't come to God and say, make me happy. Because you know what, guys? Sometimes we're going to be sad. That's fine. But you can still have this overflowing, bubbling joy in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of grief and sadness. It's not about putting on the face. (laughs) I got this from God today. Most people put that face on to go to church. We find we are. Okay, so God, all humans want to be happy. God says you should be happy, but you should be sated with happiness in me. It's when you're in Christ you will be belching the fullness of his goodness. Because this is why God wants us to come to him and be happy in him. Because God cannot be praised where God is not prized. He cannot be worshipped where he is not enjoyed. If we think that praising God is putting aside what makes us feel joy. You are not praising him. That's called hypocrisy. With your lips, they praise you, but their hearts are far from you. Jesus quoted Isaiah to the Pharisees. It's when we prize him, we will experience the outpouring of his life, and then it will come out of us 
So when we prize him, we will praise him. That's how we learn. <clears throat> that was the wind. That's how we learn the language of prayer and praise is we go to prayer to engage in this glorious presence. We become sated with the pleasure of his presence and then you belch out the praise. That's how this works. So friends, if there's anything you get out of this, please know God is a God that's flowing with abundance. He's not a God of scarcity. I only give this to my favorites or only to the ones who've done some sort of evangelism or only to those. That's not our God. Put your foot in your inheritance and let him say, he wants you to be sated with his goodness because he wants you to evangelize with the joy that flows out of your life. God cares immensely that you're full of joy because it makes him look good. So to finish, think of this. If you, if you struggle with God wanting you to be filled with his joy and that God, this is good for him, um, imagine that you go on a date with your spouse or someone that you may become a spouse with. And they're like, so are you enjoying your time with me? And you go, not really. I just came because this is the process. Well, we often say that to God. I'm just doing this because I'm supposed to. God wants you filled with the joy experienced in this psalm because when you are filled with this joy, it makes him look praised. And nothing makes him look better than a people who say, we like him, we love him, we want to press into his presence. That's what you want to hear on a date. I love my time with you. Not because you took me to an expensive restaurant, but because I'm with you. So, let's pray. Oh Lord.